This Magic the Gathering podcast and many more can be heard online at manadeprived.com slash podcasts. Leave a comment and tell us what you think. Okay, one minute. All right. So this last weekend, I filmed my senior thesis, my last project at NYU that I've directed. So okay, you tell us about it. Yeah, it was a World War One film that's based off this Italian short story. Okay, how much time? Do I have? Okay, I've, well, like twenty seconds or so. Um, yeah, it was an amazing experience. But my, this is a culmination of your four years. My four years at NYU of of undergraduate education. The finest film school. Yeah, in the United I just States of filmed in the rain and, and the, battled all the elements yesterday, and I'm here, and I still feel energized. But now we have to go talk about magic. Games. We don't have to talk about magic. This is a privilege. This it's is a, a privilege, privilege to talk about magic. Okay. All right. So, what's our article for today, Michael J? This week's article is the ten greatest battles of all time, from Monday, April twenty second, two thousand and two. Yeah. So, it's 16. almost incontrovertible that there has not been a better battle in the last 16 years <laughs> so these are the these are the 10 greatest of all time no better battles in the last 16 years all right you know go past <laughs> all right the 10 greatest battles of all time from monday april 22nd 2002 by mike flores it's hard to believe that I've been playing Magic for eight years. <laughs> that was a whopper. In that time, I've been a PTQ competitor, deck historian. <laughs> deck historian for eight years? Oh my god, this guy. Premier event reporter, one-time editor-in-chief of the first great Magic site, and have even kept the seats warm at the feature match tables once or twice myself. Over the course of those eight years, <laughs> I witnessed some great magic. I've seen incredible plays, heard trash talk from the most unlikely mouths, watched friends dominate premiere events, and even witnessed an entire city rally around their hometown boy in a tearjerker of a pro tour finals. Despite what the title claims, these probably aren't the 10 greatest battles of all time. They're just the 10 most memorable matches I've ever seen. Just. Your top 10 list is probably different from mine. You might also cheer for a different set of heroes. Even if you don't, you might nevertheless have made different choices. Brian Kibler suggested I, I select John Finkel versus Rich Frangiosa at U.S. Nationals 2000, where Finkel had to beat the story circle. But with two separate Finkel matches and two separate Napster entries already, I thought that overkill. The point is, these matches are memorable to me. But I hope that you might also like the following snapshots from games that have entertained me, impressed me, or in some instances, taught me to be a better player. Bonjour. Number 10, Jonathan Becker, P. 
PT Junk versus Unknown Opponent, The Red Zone. So we're starting off with uh, one of the 10 greatest matches of all time featuring Unknown Opponent. <laughs> Just put it out there. I wanted very much to post a Kai Buddha match, but as I've never actually seen Kai Buddha play, <laughs> believe it or not, I decided to instead post a Kai Buddha moment. The time was Regionals 2001. The matchup was the worst possible for Junk, with Becker somehow able to split the first two games. The opponent had sided in Scorching Lava, usually there for Nether Spirit, but equally effective against Ramosi and Sargent. And that annoying snake, River Boa. I remember glancing over John's shoulder and wondering why, when he passed his first turn, there was still a Sargent in his hand. It was only after his second turn when the opponent untapped and gleefully sent a main phase scorching lava at the helpless 1-1, did Becker's plan become obvious. He responded with Wax Wayne and had just gone a long way in winning a difficult matchup. So scorching lava is a two-mana burn spell. Mm-hmm. It just it, it, You can kicker it to uh, RFG a creature, so it's good against creatures that um, regenerate or, um, you know, come back from the dead. Um, but and, was, and what's Waxwain? Waxwain is a split card. Yeah, yeah. One half of it is a destroy enchantment, and the other half of it is plus two, plus two. Mm. It's a very good card. Kai Buddha, in fact, won a Pro Tour with it. It was his only green card in an otherwise mono-white deck. Mm. Back to the article. Much like Kai Buddha figures out how to beat even the toughest matchups, admittedly by drawing his last donate off the top of his deck at times, Becker had figured out he would never win if that sergeant traveled to the bin. Just as his opponent overhauled a draw with a sideboard card in the hand, Becker went with the best plan to pull out the game. It was enough. Little plays by our friends, especially where they diverge from what we would choose ourselves, are often the things that teach us to play better. With this match, there was nothing on the line. Becker's opponent was eliminated from contention, and my friend himself didn't quite make it through the next five rounds without a loss. Nevertheless, it was an opportunity for excellent play, and for that reason, had a lasting impact on me. So basically, he figured the only way he could win the match is if he set up this right play. Well, I think he just right. figured out that, like, if his sergeant died, he was going to lose. Yeah. Right? So, so his 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 plan to you know his plan to win the game ultimately was, I protect my sergeant with 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 a spell. Yeah. So he basically yeah. forewent one mana, right? So like instead of going like one drop and then like maybe played like a two drop on turn two, he just did nothing on turn one, played his sergeant on turn two with G open, right? And his opponent played a second land and then scorched the yeah. sergeant. He made it live. He played his third land. Now the sergeant can search. Probably, I don't recall what happened next, but probably Becker just passed the turn. And if his opponent had another removal card, he could have searched for another sergeant, mm-hmm. right? And if he didn't, he would have searched for a beater, probably. Uh, it was important to me. That was like, <clears throat> uh, you, you probably don't have a lot of experience playing with Signets. Is it Signet, for example? No. So um, in, I want to say 2005, 2006, uh, I made a blue-red uh, Tron deck. That uh, Osip Levadovich and another a bun- bunch of the other really good um, U.S. players played at Pro Tour Honolulu, the one mm-hmm. that Heezy won. And um, Osip was the sole undefeated player after day one, and he made top eight, uh, playing Heezy in the round of eight. And I just watched him play, and I was saying I thought one of these matchups was difficult, and Osip did something I'd never seen before. So 
one of the things that was really great about our deck, we had Mana Leak and Remand as our counter spells, and, like, that was, like, a really big strength. Like, other mm -hmm. people were trying to play, like, Hinder or something like things with, like, blue-blue, but we had no blue-blue cards and no red-red cards in our main deck. We only had blue cards and red cards. Mm -hmm. So, like, like Maloku was single-blue, Kiga single-blue, but our counter spells were also single-blue, right? So, um, Osa made this play. Just I had never seen this play before, and in hindsight, it's so... It makes so much sense, right? So he just, like, plays, like, a Tron piece in, like, a blue... Like, some kind of blue land. Like, whether it was a Tendo Ice Bridge or an island or whatever it was. Dual land. Says go. And then his opponent did nothing. And then he played his third land. And then he played his Signet and said go. Right? After the match, I was just like, I've just never made that play. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I just always play the Signet on turn two. Mm -hmm. Right? So like, well, you can't even tap the signet for mana if you play that, make that play. I'm like, I know your play was so much better. Like, he just does nothing on turn two. When he plays a signet on turn three with, with mana open, then his opponent does something, he can counter it, right, with the signet mana. Mm -hmm. Which is like so, it's so intuitive if you say it out loud. But I had tested that deck so much, right? So, like, I had tested that deck so much to, like, um, you know, this was the deck our team was going to play for the Pro Tour. And, uh, it had never occurred to me to make that play one time in testing. Wow. Not one time. And I'd probably play that deck but, I mean, 50 it, hours. Yeah, it's like two drop. I play it on two, but, I should, but and, you know, it's just better to keep the mana open on well, two. Especially with so many explosive turn three plays. Like, especially in sideboard games, they're like Giant Solifuge and Annex. Mm -hmm. So, like, super explosive turn three plays. So, it's like, just reinforce over and over again to play it on turn two. Um, but, like... It's just, it's whack. I mean, also, if you had, like, you just won the lottery, right? And you're like, Tron piece, Tron piece, Tron piece, right? That's three, um, four, five, six, seven, eight. I don't know. What can you even do for eight? I don't know. Deck was dumb. <laughs> Crushed everybody. He lost in the top eight, but sole undefeated player on day one. Um, but yeah, it's just like something like that. Like, if I teach you that play, now you know that play, right? But yeah. if no one teaches you that play, like, it's weird because uh, they yeah, had yeah. been. So the New Jersey guys like Rabbits and Osip and Eugenius and those guys were all all playing together, right? And I was playing by myself, right? But we were all like Cunio was on our list too. But I was like literally just playing by myself, like against myself on Apprentice. You know, you play against you probably never play against yourself on Cockatrice, right? But like I mean, a lot of pros play against themselves on Cockatrice. That's how they test for Pro Tours. Um, but yeah, I was, I was just playing against myself like ten hours a day on on Apprentice. Like I used to play a lot. <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, I just came to this conclusion, and I just never made that play. Anyway, point being, Becker made an awesome play uh, that I just never occurred. Like, I made his deck, and it never occurred to me that play. You know? Like, John, these plays, they're the only play that occurred to John. Anyway, next right. round. Number nine, Jonathan Finkel on Napster versus Chris Benefell on Ponza Rada Red. You could make an argument for their U.S. Nationals finals match which had more on the line and certainly involved more yelling and cheering, including that famous Bueller hacker moment. Why is he cycling that rapid decay? And Benefil's plea, you could at least make it look close. <laughs> but for my mind... I feel like we covered this match before. It was their clash in the Swiss rounds that was more fun to watch. Oh, yeah, it was, it was hilarious. Why is he cycling that rapid decay? Because, like, um, Benefil had Hammer Bogardon in the graveyard. Yeah. John couldn't beat Hammer Bogardon. He cycles the rapid decay and like Bueller's going crazy and like it's obvious he had Yogmoth's will, right? And then he wills back the rapid decay mm -hmm. and then just destroys Benefell's life. You see, Napster was the perfect deck for Jonathan Magic at that point. It had the most raw power of any deck in the format, at least until Tinker's appearance at Worlds, 
and was full of complex decisions. The deck was particularly rewarding to the king of decision makers and eventual champion. This game, on the other hand, showcased the awesome power of the unlikely draw and saw the eventual champion on autopilot. John opened up with Swamp, Dark Ritual, Dark Ritual, Dark Ritual, Persecute Skittering Horror. And his second turn play was Rishadon Port. Benefel had been mind-twisted, mana-stunted, and was facing down a 4-3 before his first play. 4-3 was pretty big back then. <laughs> Quite understandably, he complained about Finkel's you had to have exactly those cards, luck. But aloofly characteristic of John, he responded with, well, if I had John won for you a ritual, I would have just persecuted you on the second turn. First, a little preamble to the next match. Future teammate John Schuler and I shared the bottom rung of day two of Bob Maher's Chicago and ended up playing for not last place. If you know either of us, you might by now suspect that the fireworks did not take long to hit, that the primary lament was from Mark Rosewater, who would have made it a feature match, but for our dismal positions in the tournament at that point. This match featured my conceding, John conceding in response, both of us being informed that neither of us would be allowed to concede, and my sideboarding out Simeon grunts, yes, sadly, Simeon grunts, simply so that John would not have the pleasure of finding them with lobotomy. So loud and disruptive, and quite fun was this match, yes, I won, that it earned a rowdy complaint from, it would ironically turn out, and I do mean ironically, John's next round opponent leading up to... Eight, J. Gary Wise on Suicide Brown versus John Schuler Necro Tinker. So, J. Gary Wise is in the Hall of Fame now. He's a Pro Tour champion, by the way. In the words of Gary himself, My matchup with John Schuler was hardly a great battle. When I sat down to play John, I'd never actually spoken with him, and have to admit, I didn't know too much about him. So, what I got was a total shocker. John has as much personality as anyone on tour, and he brought it to that particular table with as much vengeance as I've seen anyone do. Before the first game, John informed me that he would concede to me if we ever got to the point where he might achieve a victory. I kind of half-smiled, worrying that he might be playing some kind of mind game and didn't accept his word at face value. Game one, he absolutely crippled me. With some combination of Dark Ritual, Mana Vault, Smokestack, and Processor coming out of his hand on the first couple of turns. Game 2 was much of the same, with John doing something obscene involving a very fast 19-point Phyrexian Processor and the mana to make a token. Now, when he gets down to down the Processor, he calls over Mike Fuel and asks him to go to the side events area and get a Pikachu card to represent his 1919 guy. And he refuses to continue until Mike gets back. I'm worried about time issues because this could be a stall, but Nat Fairbanks is watching the whole thing and is making sure everything's copacetic. I asked John who is again telling me about the impending concession, about why he's conceding, and that and he explains that Matt Vianu cheesed him out in their match, offending him so much that he wanted to lose as much as possible in order to hurt Matt's tiebreakers. Now, I've had battles with Matt, who I like a lot around 80% of the time and despise the other 20%, but even I have never found myself disgusted enough with him to throw a pro tour 
So I'm sitting there wondering what kind of a psycho I'm playing against when Fuel gets back and presents the Pikachu card. Schuler inspects the card and informs Mike that it's the wrong Pikachu, that he wants the common variety, and sends this level three judge scurrying back to the play area, and we sit there chatting with our match frozen in time. Five more minutes pass. This is round 14, and we're still, and we're both out of the money. And Fuel gets back and informs John he needs to get the card back to its owner. And Schuler goes off, talking about how he'll need to keep the cards and what the hell was Mike thinking. <laughs> Rather than continuing to weather the storm, Fuel sheepishly heads back to the side events, showing up another five minutes down the line. And Schuler is finally appeased. He grabs a marker. Signs the Pikachu, marks its power and toughness on the card, and puts it into play. Two turns later, as I'm going to die, about as I'm about to die with damage on the stack, John finally extends his hand, conceding, and gives me the card. I think he lost his last five matches in a row on purpose or something. With the time stops, the insane draws, and the continued yelling between Schuler and Mike Flores, the smirking judges surrounding the table, the end of PT fatigue, and the anti-VNU venom, it was definitely one of the strangest moments of my career. Matt finished, uh, Matt finished 32nd, and John and I now do a dinner each year. Good times. 32nd qualifies you for the next Pro Tour. <laughs> Um, point of trivia, Matt Vienu, Matt Vienu is a multiple Grand Prix champion, qualified for that Pro Tour on rating because he finished second in an extended PTQ back when there was separate extended ratings. Mm. Who finished first in that PTQ? You. It was me. I defeated him in the finals, yeah. All right, moving on. Yeah. Number seven, Altran, TDC Black for Scott Seville on three color green. Oh, this is a great one. In the top eight of a PTQ for Dave Price's L.A., then-demonic attorney Scott Seville, famous for his top eight performance at Grand Prix Kansas City, squared off with the amazing Altran, famous for, well, this match. The TDC Black deck would end up being immortalized in Beth Morrison's deck deconstruction companion, albeit misattributed to some Albert Trans rather than Altran proper. The setup from Altran's tournament report, the third game was one to remember. I knock him down to 15 when he establishes total control. This is what he has on the table. Two serrated arrows, a stormbind, two land taxes, a mana bird, a priest, and an ore of silence. I have swamps. I'm hoping to bleed some arrow tokens, so I play a barrow ghoul, hoping to be able to later cast the 25 knights I had in my hand. I had only one creature in the graveyard, so theoretically the ghoul can only get one hit in. So I sack that one creature and send in the ghoul. Scott makes the smart play of not doing anything to the ghoul and takes four on the chin, bringing him down to 11. My barrow ghoul will die the next turn, so I cast a knight of Stromgald, hoping Scott will kill it. Duh, he doesn't. He Armageddon's or something, and I contagion his Sultari priest and my knight. Beatings. He takes a final hit from the ghoul, leaving him at seven. Okay, what the hell am I going to do with two arrows, a stormbind, two land taxes, an ore of silence, and a centaur? which he eventually puts down on the table. Now at this point, certain undesirables ruin the spectacle for everyone. Cheering, hooting, and hollering forces head judge Tony Perotti to throw everyone not actually playing in the top eight out. I'm approached by fellow top eighter, 
Alex Schwartzman. Your friend made a good run, but he's going to lose this one. I think he's going to apply Choking Sands to a dual land and then follow up with one of the most famous plays in PTQ history. Calling out, Spring forth, Burly Protector, and save me! Altran will cast Demonic Consultation for his one Caravex Spite and then spite the face. How many spites? One, of course. Bah! said Alex and left. The only thing I didn't anticipate was that Seville went on to tap one mana, show Birds of Paradise, and frown at his board of one zero power Birds of Paradise and one untargetable Jolrail Centaur. Show Swords of Pleasure. What? You said show Birds, the birds of Paradise, and then you said. So, sure, yeah, he's Swords of Pleasure. Before 1998, consulting for singletons was unheard of. Altran has been autographing the Black Instant ever since. Do you understand what happened there? His opponent's on seven, right? So we all get thrown out, right? Because this match was insane. All right, so Scott Deville's a Grand Prix Top 8 competitor. Mm-hmm. Altran's local hero. This is like, at the time, it's like one of the most famous PTQ matches that ever happened, right? So um, he can't win, right? He's just like multiple straighted arrows, an aura of silence. Like he can't do anything, theoretically. He can't like even play a curse scroll, right? He's like, plays a curse scroll, the aura of silence will kill it, right? So, um, but we knew this play because it would come up in testing. Right, so uh, he has this card, Choking Sands, which is BB1. It's a black stone rain, but if it's a hits a non-basic, you take two. Mm. So he's at seven, and so he, he had gotten one hit in with the Barragul, right? If and Scott had just stopped the Barragul damage, but he it wasn't even part of his paradigm that he could lose the game, right? So I was just like, Algernon's definitely going to win, right? Like, um, he, he just has to put him to five, and then he can consult for the Caravic mm. Spite and kill him, right? So Caravic Spite... Is a wonderful Magic the Gathering spell. It costs BBB. It's an instant, and it has the following text Sacrifice all permanence. Discard your hand. Target player loses five life. We always played one. Uh, tribute. Brian Schneider would not let me play one in a, <laughs> a deck really? that I won a, a PTQ with uh, the next year. Um, he wouldn't let me. And <laughs> like, even one, he's like, shut up. His instructions were, don't ask any questions, don't change any cards. So I said, can I? He said, that sounds like a question. So I was not allowed to ask any questions, and I was not allowed to change any cards. That, that deck was played in four total tournaments. Uh, the finishes were top eight, top four, win-win. <laughs> four tournaments was played. With no Carvex play. With no Carvex play. Altran was one of the four who, uh, who top eighted. Or maybe top four. Okay, next match. Number six, Zvi Moshowitz, ID19 versus Steve MacArthur on White Lightning. ID19 stands for I Draw 19. I Draw 19. Yeah, okay. so, but it's, I, that was Zvi's nickname for it, ID19. It was the summer of 1999. It was the weekend of U.S. Nationals. Wild things were happening with the new classic rules. The stack made delusions of mediocrity, not just a powerful combination of opponent. But an opportunity for an opponent with a disenchant to play 10-point Lightning Bolt. The aptly named White Lightning deck, behind the power of a pre-errata waylay, could play three 2-2 creatures at the end of the opponent's turn and swing for six life, like Ball Lightning, supercharging the White Weenie deck. Zvi Moshowitz was hot in the summer of 1990, coming off a top-eight loss to Casey McCarroll at Pro Tour New York in a top-eight performance at Grand Prix D.C. He had declared the power of Yawgmoth's bargain and was playing for a spot on the U.S. national team with young Steve MacArthur, a Texan who idolized Bill Macy, 
was even playing his signature archetype. Zvi had been 10-point bolted. He had perished into a no-land five-card hand against a deck full of disenchants. His back was firmly against the wall. He was down 0-2, then 1-2, and had somehow battled to 2-2. He had turned a two-game deficit into a one-game anti-match. If only Zvi could take Game 5, his spot on the U.S. national team would be assured. It was now MacArthur's turn to Paris to 5. That's all right, thought Steve. I have a pair of Soul Wardens in my hand. These are trouble for the Blaze-Killing Bargain combination deck. I guess they're a problem, unless the opponent opens with Swamp Dark Ritual Grim Monolith Voltaic Key. Mastacore! Go ahead and gain one, retorted Zvi, knowing that a double mulligan victim would not likely be able to answer a turn one Gastacore. MacArthur played a Japanese Soul Warden to match his English one and pass the turn. A turn later, and firmly in control of the game, behind Grim Monolith Voltaic Keys, V poked the Japanese Soul Warden with his Mastacore. MacArthur moved the English one to his graveyard when V corrected him. A blank look from the hapless MacArthur earned possibly the best trash talk response in the history of magic. That's all right, Steve. You can keep the Japanese chick. Because you're not going to Tokyo. <laughs> the rest, as they say... Is another world's win for TSA. <laughs> that was filthy, right? That's that's pretty bad. That was me. Yeah, yeah. Steve MacArthur was one of my two losses in that tournament. I, I finished ninth. It's the Wild West of the oh, three losses. I guess I had that tournament. Wild West of the Pro Tour. Yeah, I finished ninth. <laughs> I would have beaten V. Moving on. Yeah. Number five. That's good trash talk, right? It's yeah, from Zvi. Come that, on. That's pretty good. Uh, number five. Brian Kibler on Burned Alive versus John Finkel on Counterpost. Oh, I love this picture of a Brian with the tie-dye sweater. Of a tie-dye and Tevas, man. Oh, we should do Tevas? Tie-dye and Tevas, man. Oh, my God. Dragons and Deep Dish. Tie-dye and Tevas. You don't, you don't know the classic. You only know, you only know like, um, Brian Kibler version 2.0, right? Brian Kibler 1.0 was my teammate, like, back in the 90s. We were, like... Oh, my God. Before, like, he was... He let me think. I think, it was, I think he won all of his Pro Tour championships. I think it was Brian Kibler 2.0 who won all the Pro Tour championships, right? Brian Kibler version 1.0 was just, like, friends with me and Lan and Brian Schneider. <laughs> like, Brian Schneider and Lan and, and Kibler were a team called the Underground. And um, I was on a team called Cabal Rogue. And, like... The cool kids from Cabal Rogue were friends with the Underground, and we had another team, but I don't remember the name of our team off the top of my head. Although, Kibler and I played on a team called Team Red Bull with uh, John Becker once. Are you fascinated? This is, oh, this is all Brian Kibler version 1.0, right? Not the one who won all those Pro Tours. <laughs> it was like teenage Brian Kibler. Oh, my God. But yeah, it was like Magic was so fun back then. I mean, I don't know. Are people having fun like we had fun in the 90s now when you go to tournaments? I doubt it. Like I've, I don't know, tournaments are like so serious. I I definitely think there's like things are strict, more strictly enforced now, right? Like, like we, like Z's comment would not fly at like. Well, first of all, it's so different. Like, I mean, I'm not saying I'm super good, but all my friends who I hung out with were super good, and the fact that they still play now and crush all these young kids is like testament to how super good, like, like. Like, how leveled better we must have all been than, you know. But, like, we were just having fun. Like, 
like all this like if you're just like so serious and getting reps in and everything we were like literally sneaking into like a prom the night before the pro tour because it was on the same boat that we were on like that was like literally what we did the night before like going to dance clubs and remember we wrote read that article the the brian hacker article oh yeah yeah like we our agenda was not just only to play in the pro tour our agenda was like to have fun and like travel around the world and meet your friends is that weird no but I don't know, like, we, we, we go over, like, you know, you have to kind of have a certain regimen for winning tournaments, right? Yeah, I mean, but this is tie-dye and team is Brian Kibler. <laughs> this is Dragons and Deep Stein team. All right, uh, all right, let's, let's read. Brian Kibler. If you are one of, if you, <laughs> if you are one Jonathan Magic, basically, no one can defeat you on a consistent basis. To this day, after a year of Kai Buddha dominance on the Pro Tour, you still have the best win percentage of anyone to play serious Magic. Unless your opponent is heavily armored, there is nothing that can stop your blistering offense. But oddly enough, the proper set of armor for protection from Jonathan Magic appears to be a pair of Tevas and a tie-dyed shirt. <laughs> oh, there are legends of the clashes between Dragon Master and Shadow Mage Infiltrator. There are those that would claim that against Finkel's capsize.deck, Kibler once played a third-turn Wrathy Dragon, sacrificing all his lands but one, and scored from 20. Some would claim, with the tables turned, it was Finkel who, with Mono Green, went all out with a Narcissism Alpha Strike, but was robbed of the kill by a timely Aether Burst from Kibler. In this version, inexplicably cast as the Blue Mage. And there is Anthony Alonji, who once wrote, For all this reporter's expectations, of writing for his first pro tour, he never imagined that he would be able to write the sentence. Brian Kibler came over with an armadillo-cloaked Rith to smack John Finkel and force him to concede. (laughs) And while all those stories are true, there was one match that started them all. On July 4th weekend, 1997, Justin Gary was an unknown who had somehow stolen the U.S. National Championship and Bob Marr was some little kid. John Finkel, coming off of a U.S. Open win, was on his way to having the best Magic weekend since Dennis Bentley won the U.S. Nationals crown a year earlier. Kibler had yet to have his moment in the spotlight, with his Grand Prix Toronto, or Pro Tour Canada as the pundits call it, win still a month in the making, but he too had won a grinder, the very last one, to qualify for Nationals. Finkel was armed with his then-trademark counterpost deck, Kibler with, mu- with multicolor burned alive he designed in concert with, the fo- with, following- with, uh, sorry, with fellow deck-building guru Brian Schneider. Finkel's counterpost deck was armed to the teeth against traditional buried-alive decks, complete with swords to plowshares, serrated arrows, and circle of protection black waiting in the sideboard. Kibler's deck, however as has since become something of his trademark, was hardly traditional. The deciding Game 3 was a fast and furious one, with Kibler's Knight of Stromgeld followed quickly by a Buried Alive for a trio of Ashen Ghouls, while Finkel cantripped through his deck and put land into play with the mighty Thawing Glaciers. On Finkel's fifth turn, he tapped out to drop a Serrated Arrows, all but stopping the future Dragon Master's undead army in its tracks, and played out his thawing glaciers to continue digging for land. K- 
Kibler would have none of it. However, and after sending in his night unscathed, couldn't help but crack a smile when he played his sideboard bomb. Armageddon? Lose? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Losing to Kibler has over the years become common practice for Jonathan. But this match was worth it. Just to see the jaw of the best player in the world hit the table. Just like so. Did Kibler beat John at Pro Tour Dark Ascension when he didn't block the wolf? Was that Kibler against John also? And then Kibler won the Pro Tour the next round? I can't... No. I thought, wait. Pro Tour Dark Ascension. Kib- yeah. Was it Kibler against John? I, I can't believe I can't... I, in the finals? No. It's the top four. John's up and he doesn't block the wolf. All right, we're gonna do it like a. We're gonna we're gonna research this right now. How can the meantime light? <laughs> do no, just go to the top eight. Top eight bracket. Brian Kibler three two against. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not blocking the wolf is against Kibler. He really has John's number. He's wow. had his number for 25 years in big matches. It's weird because can you imagine the one person on earth you've got his number? It's John, John Finkel. Finkel. <laughs> like, like, and I mean, John, the, John's just, I don't know if it's. Is it mathematically provable? Should I have blocked the wolf? Right? <laughs> it's, it's not even clear he should block the wolf, right? I mean,. I don't know. If you factor in the likelihood of an Inferno Titan, anyway, long story short, Kibler has always had his number. <laughs> Forever. Um, yeah. And Kibler, I think, is coming back for, uh, for Pro Tour Dominaria. Yo, yo, yo. I mean, he's, nice he, job being in the Hall of Fame. You can come back whenever you want. No, but he hasn't played in Pro Tour in a while. But he's what, after yeah, he Animal Elves. He hasn't played. played since before the last time I played. I think so. Yeah, like... But but he I think he tweeted that uh, yeah Land Worlds yeah Land Worlds I don't know if, oh is that Pro Tour Dominaria what Pro Tour are we going to qualify for twenty fifth anniversary yeah that's the one afterwards all right next for Steve OMS Mono Black versus Mike Long on Black Green oh this is a limited match this is a beating though <laughs> even if you didn't know that Steve OMS is a popular guy in the Pro Tour. You would probably be able to infer that for yourself if you watched the top eight draft of 1999's Pro Tour LA. Urza Saga was a limited set blacker than Torment, according to some. But Steve OMS's mono black deck was protected by what has been understated as friendly drafting. With dead guy friends Worth Wolpert and John Finkel dedicating themselves to green, red, and blue, white, Steve had free reign to pick up nothing but Befouls and Corrupts. History tells us that Steve and his perfect black deck prevailed over John Finkel in the finals, but along the way, his most impressive match was against Mike Long. Mike had drafted some powerful black and green cards. In addition to the undisputed best color of Urza Saga, Long had added some of green's fastest and most efficient creatures. Oddly, though, Mike left two copies of Befoul in his sideboard, starting off-color cycling cards instead of them. As flexible as Befoul normally was as a removal card, in order to get past his quarterfinals opponent, Long could not afford to have overcosted Stone Rains in his main deck. Befoul is a forecasting cost Stone Rain, but it also can destroy a non black creature. Steve's deck was mono black, just mm. for reference. Steve's deck performed brilliantly in the first two games, but Mike battled back in game three, allowing Steve to start game four. And what a game four it was! Steve played a swamp and passed the turn. Mike played a forest and threatened with a pouncing jaguar. The jaguar 
A 2-2 for only G would be a devastating clock against Steve's powerful but slow black deck. If only it would stay in play. Just as Mike played that Jaguar, I remember the thought passing through my head. I wonder if Steve plays Dark Ritual. My question was answered on OMS's second turn as he played Dark Ritual and cast the four mana Befoul on Mike's only land. Not only was his forest gone, but Mike would not be able to pay Echo on the Pouncing Jaguar. He was down to no permanence. A couple of turns later, Mike had a forest once again and played a Critian, another undercosted Echo creature, 2-4 for 1 and a G. Once again, Steve had the Befoul for Mike's only green source. The next several turns, Steve's duress on Mike's corrupt, his taking complete control of the board with Pestilence and Hollow Dogs, simply formalized a game that was won in the first four turns. It is rare that you see that kind of domination in a limited game. Then again, it's pretty rare to see a draft deck nearly as good as Mr. O'Mahony Schwartz's. Number three, Bob Mara Jr., Mar Oath versus Brian Davis on Free Spell Necro. Did you ever actually watch Maher v. Davis with uh, Brian Hacker on commentary? I think they have it on the Watsi site. It's, as, a, as a commentator, I've always tried to emulate Maher v. Davis. I think it's the pinnacle of, of commentary. It's really good. It's a great match. It's the only match that somebody loses 5-0. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, good guys win, bad guys die. And uh, Hacker is brilliant. In the days before the discovery of tricks, PT Chicago's extended top eight was made up of eight great eight different decks. On one side of the finals, an unknown teenager from Memphis, Tennessee, had beaten Britain's deck of the tournament, the Skull Catapult, and followed up by taking down France's five-color green. He beat Raphael Levy in the top four. Raphael mm. Levy, now a Pro Tour Hall of Famer. On the other side of the finals table, a hometown favorite had piloted a deck that would eventually be named for him past the previous year's Chicago champion in a pseudo-mirror match and kept strong against Christian Lure's aggressive sliver deck. The age-old battle would be fought once again in Chicago's finals in what would be called the greatest of constructed formats. On one side, the rookie, wielding the power of death. On the other, the has-been. But born again, with Oath of Druids at his command, it was Davis v. Maher, who was the most dramatic Pro Tour Finals of all time. I think it's hilarious that we thought that Bob was a has-been when he had made his Pro Tour debut, I think, in 1997. This match was taking place in 1999. <laughs> like, think about like what are what the distance we had? Maybe 2000. No, he's a has been, right? He's like the third greatest player of all time. Um, in part because of this victory. <laughs> Game one looked to be all Davis. He opened with the best possible hand for Necropotence, including Swamp, Dark Ritual, Duress, Unmask. And, of course, the skull itself, especially going first. He was almost guaranteed to destroy Baba's hand and force the best drawing engine in the history of Magic into play. Though Davis claimed good game with his opening turn, Bob stuck it out, even as everything from swords to plowshares to morphling was ripped out of his hand. It was a missed land drop for Davis on turn five, almost unheard of with Necropotence in play that gave Maher his opening. Counterspells and library manipulation kept Brian's eventual drain life attempts largely unresolved. Though he was drawing tons of cards, 
the rookie's life total was dwindling thanks to the skull. And then the crowd roared. Maher had drawn Ivory Mask. Davis's skittering scourges were a non-issue against the Oath of Druid's deck, as long as Brian couldn't actually target Bob. How the hometown boy chose to win was just a formality. He already had. With game two, momentum was firmly with the hometown favorite. Davis declared a mulligan, got off to a slow start, and ended up facing a Maher compost, despite a duress on his enlightened tutor. After a late-game play error by the rookie, the title seemed all but in Maher's hands. But the next game changed all that. Game three was all Davis. Another perfect opening hand saw him with turn one necropotence, an opponent totally stripped of resources, and a fresh seven for turn two. Davis lost a pair of Nevenroll's discs to Maher's counterspells, but the Oath player could not stop the flurry of corrupts and drain lives from young Davis. It is rare to see Morphling hit play and have no effect on the game, but all the shapeshifter could do was look left and right as his master got tagged by Davis's kill cards. Game four was as odd as game one. This time, Davis didn't get turn one necropotence. In fact, he didn't get much of anything. One unmasked hit, another was countered. When Davis finally found a demonic consultation for necropotence, Maher, of course, had the counterspell. With Davis's draw so poor, it looked like Bob was in complete control. Nevertheless, even while getting slugged by Bob's treetop village, Brian played for the win with his vastly suboptimal draw. Making a desperation drain life, Davis was rewarded with a top-deck dark ritual the next turn, emptying Maher's life total with his other card. Another drain life. Game 5 had perhaps the most lopsided opening in history. On one side, Maher declared a mulligan, going first. On the other side, Davis had once again the best possible hand to start. Leading with an unmask that took compost, Davis had yet another turn one necropotence. Maher stalled on lands. Davis drew two wastelands. Maher had no land. But something happened. Despite Davis's perfect opening, despite his opponent's bad luck, the skull refused to give the rookie any swamps. Though Maher had been himself stuck without permanence, he had a window that turned into a floodgate. Persecute. Counterspell. Drain life. Force of will. Drain life. Disrupt. Got him with a disrupt. Maher's miracle comeback was complete when Davis, now at one life due to a fickle necropotence, sent his last corrupt of the eventual champion unsuccessfully. Once again, the crowd roared. The local boy turned pro tour champion, the has-been, went on to become the player of the year. In one of the few true Kodak moments of professional magic, the victor caught his then-girlfriend in midair. Yup, he got the girl too. Wow. It's very cinematic. <clears throat> Number two? Number two. Brian Hacker, free spell necro versus JLRR on Pooburn. Pooburn, yeah, JLRR. Um, JLRR is like, he has many, many top finishes. Brian Hacker, I maintain, should be in the Hall of Fame. Though it may seem anticlimactic in the face of the previous two matches, both the final battle and this gem from round seven of Grand Prix Seattle stick in my mind as some of the most brilliant, eccentric, and eye-opening magic matches I've ever witnessed. Actually, both LRR and um, 
and Hacker made top eight of that Grand Prix. Though they battled in round seven, and not both of them could win in round seven. Do you have a guess who won this match? Hacker. You think that the Necro deck beat the Burn deck? It's like an 80% matchup for the Burn deck, by the way. Let's find out. LRR, who would eventually make top eight in this Grand Prix, brought Seth Burns' Chicago deck, Pooh Burn, to Seattle, while Hacker played a free spell Necropotence deck similar to the one played by Brian Davis in our previous battle. Game one saw Hacker almost recklessly spend his hand on LRR's creatures and then consult for a dark ritual with only two land and three cards in hand. Rather than playing the Skull, California's innovator of beatdown, put into play a hand-depleting Mastacore. Banking on the theory that LRR's small creatures and burn would not be able to hang with the 4-4 regenerating monster, despite the fact that it would prevent any future development on the part of Hacker locking him firmly under his own core, his gambit was rewarded by a win that only Seth himself, later a fan of throwing away all possible resources to win close games with Blue Skies, could appreciate. Jay came back for game two, taking the win with the rather humdrum slide draw of ball, lightning, and burn. It was game three that showed off Hacker's magic. In a move that would have infuriated Eric Lauer, Hacker sided out half his necropotences against the burn deck. Jay had shown him something in game one, so Hacker meant once again to win with the Mastercore plan. Using his acceleration and manipulation to get a quick core once again in play, Hacker wiped up Jay's board and had him on a clock. Hacker had figured out that LRR didn't know he could incinerate the Mastercore to death. The then young classic rules seemed to imply that Hacker could respond with a successful regeneration, so it was not likely that LRR would even try to burn away the Mastercore, unless he had no other possible play. At that point, under next to no board pressure, the San Diego native would almost certainly have two mana open. Under Hacker's clock, LRR drew a sideboard bomb. Spell shock! but unfortunately ended up locking himself under it, unable to fire blast out his opponent without first killing himself. Sound familiar, Burn player? Nope. <laughs> Jay, of course, came back to earn a number of great finishes, not the least of which were a Pro Tour Top 8 Masters Finals and JSS Championship. Yet this match is a perfect example of how one of the greatest players of all time could play against his opponent, even a fine opponent and not just his deck archetype. Hacker knew that Jay was too good a strategist to let him feed Necropotence with his spinning darknesses, so he simply had to play into one of the, one of the, into the one opening his opponent did give him. Ironically, Jay lost in the GP Seattle Top 8 to an almost identical inability to incinerate a Mastercore at the hands of Dave Price's very different Mono Black Hatred deck, so he just didn't know the rules. But Hacker read him for not knowing the rules. Mm. That's an interesting thing to read somebody for, right? It's like a nuanced rule. Because um, it seems like you can respond, because the stack, you can respond uh, to the text on the, uh, on the other card. But the text on the other card actually overwrites the stack. This reminds me of like when I, when I, the, the tournament where I first played Approach in. Yeah. I, I played, I just like, uh, I, it was game one. I was playing, it was, I, was down, it was like, I was down a match. This is the first time I'm playing the deck. I thought it was like Dan, because Dan were shipping yeah, yeah. the deck, right? I lost to Red. I was like, oh, this deck sucks. So I'm playing against Control, right? I'm like, oh, there's no. I'm like, I think I had cast an approach in uh, my. I forgot, but whatever. Anyway, what happened, basically, what happened was my opponent had a lot of cards in hand. 
lot of mana open. He definitely had counter spells left in his deck like a lot. Yeah. And I, I cast my uh, my second approach for the game, and he like snap conceded. Because he, <laughs> he thought he just won on the spot. Yeah. It's actually the opposite, right? So if you counter the first approach, it doesn't matter. The second approach will still win. I think he just thought that no matter if he had played counter spell or not, that he would lose. He would lose. Yeah. It's very similar to that. Yeah. Yeah. RTFC, is that how they say it? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I just like slam an approach when he had like <clears throat> eight, like, eight lands and like seven cars in him. All right, little sister, number one. All right, number one. Steve OMS on Napster versus David Humphreys on Replenish. It may have not seemed like much. Both of these great pro tour champions was now just one match out of top eight contention at the 2000 U.S. Nationals. In the last round of Swiss, just one year before the vaunted expansion of prize money, with nothing on the line but some DCI points that would be ultimately meaningless for combatants of such standing, these players crashed for nothing but pride and the opportunity to show off a perfect game. Steve knew that Dave was running replenish. Going first, his hand was absolutely perfect. A couple of lands, a dark ritual, a Phyrexian negator a Stromgald Cabal, and that most miserly of mulligans, the vampiric tutor itself, stared back at the boy from Brooklyn. Think back at what you would have done with a grip like this. Testing showed that in order to beat a Stromgald Cabal, Replenish needed either to ramp up to eight mana under absolutely no pressure, or to have a Ring of Gix in play. Steve knew that if YMG had Ring of Gix at all, it wouldn't have been in the main deck. My first instinct as a spectator and silver bullet player was Swamp Ritual win! You know, Swamp Dark Ritual, Stromgold Cabal was an implication, right? And then Steve showed me the right play. Instead of turn one Stromgold Cabal, Steve went for turn one Phyrexian Negator. After the hump passes first turn, Steve untapped, cast Vampiric Tutor on his upkeep for a second Dark Ritual, then ensured the win by playing Stromgold Cabal in turn two. Watching this game, it was painfully obvious how vastly superior Steve's play was to the one I would have made. Of all the people to whom I have ever told this story, the only ones who came up with the complete correct answer to that opening hand were Pro Tour champions Finkel and Moshewitz. Zvi once explained to me that the problem with perfect play is that, especially with an overpowered yet decision-heavy deck like Napster or Turboland, you will have ten possible plays, nine of which are wrong, but seven of which win the game. Making a play like mine would have in all likelihood won the game at some point, but would not have promoted correct play. In fact, a win in the, game, in the face of an error rewards being bad. Go figure. For his part, Jonathan Magic said, Mike, if you keep testing with me and Steve, that will be the only play you see. Delighted at this prospect, I was prepared to become a technically proficient magician. Of course, history tells us that immediately after his brilliant championship over championship summer for the machine, despite a subsequent pair of back-to-back PT top eights, Jonathan Magic decided to completely eschew Pro Tour preparation, and I remain exactly as bad as I ever was. I hope you liked this little departure as much as I liked remembering the memorable moments that made it up. Okay, Mike's making me read this. 
Mike has been a leading voice in the game strategy for as long as there has been a magic internet. He is the former editor of the Magic Dojo and a sometime pro player. Michael J. Flores' Decade is a compilation of Mike's first 10 years of strategy and theory, i.e. before he joined MagicTheGathering.com and is available at www.top8magic.com. You can either discuss this on the message boards, respond via email, or we can go check out the Mike Flores archive, and it's, it's you with a nice uh, like red Hawaiian shirt and like, some yeah. spiked hair. Yeah. So what did you think of the 10 greatest battles of all time? Well, some pretty good battles. I, <laughs> some goobery battles, some right? Some goobery. I, I think, I, let's see. What were your favorite battles? Did you like Finkel I... against Kibler? <laughs> Do you know who wrote that italicized section that you read? Who? Kibler. Really? He, yeah, he wrote it in the third person. <laughs> I, I say, What a lawler, right? So my, I think I, I, I learned, I like the, the um, number 10 Becker versus an opponent. Yeah. I think I, I like what you you know wrote here, which was uh, playing, making just an insane play, where in the tournament it just doesn't matter. Just to sh- I mean, it was completely correct, but I don't know that that that's cool. I think that's like, it's like interesting to keep that up, you know, even when it doesn't matter. Like half of these, like in hindsight, half of these are just like blowouts, right? Like, yeah, someone just like draws a bunch of dark rituals. Like half of these. Matches are just like somebody drew multiple mana accelerators in their opening wow, game. Wow, I can't believe Jean Schuler just wanted to concede that badly to hurt his... Uh... Like, he was like a... You know, we, we top... I think we 15th the Pro Tour together mm-hmm. um, in 2001. It's like one of my best friends. Uh, you know, we were teammates. Like, like, like the kind of like extended Cabal Rogue underground team. I can't remember the hell the name of the team was. Um... Uh, it was like probably something goobery that like Taylor came up with, like Team Tivas or something. <laughs> like it was like it was just a different time, man. Um, but yeah, it was like Lan and Schneider and Kibbs and me and I don't know. We were young. Like you hang out with Lan IRL now. Yeah. Lan was like a good player. He was like multiple Grand Prix top eight competitor back then. Um. I don't know. The, yeah, I, I, can't, I, I can't remember because I just, I, I didn't like read the article before like, I came. I was like, oh, let's just do this one. I was like looking at a picture of like Kipler in the in the tie-dye and I'm like, oh, tie-dye and Tivas. Like that's what the section was about. Tie-dye and Tivas, you know? But yeah, I think, I don't know. I think maybe my conception of like what a great match would be different now because like, seriously, like half these matches are like, if you look at the opening hands are just like one of the two players drew multiple pieces of man acceleration. Right, and they just crushed the other. Yeah, there's a lot of dark rituals in this article. Yeah, they banned that card in multiple formats. <laughs> it's really too good. I mean, like, I think at least like three or four of them. No, like, well, I mean, it's different though. How, because like that that one, card was two, three, three, four. four. Uh, that that I don't think that deck. No, that one did five, five. six. Uh, I don't know. No, that deck was black, but did, we didn't play Dark Ritual, I don't think. Maybe we did. I don't remember. Necro Tinker definitely had Dark Six? Ritual. Six? Yeah. Seven? Seven. All right. So Seven of the ten greatest battles of all time were, were about multiple Dark Rituals, right? Oh, my God. You're not even one. Have you played against Dark Ritual? No. Maybe, like, 
a long time ago playing against like Legacy Reanimator. What is the name of that deck? Searing? Uh, no, so it's R two make five mana. Seeding song. That card's banned, right? Yeah. Okay. That card is nowhere near as powerful as Dark Ritual. No, Not even close, right? Dark Ritual will play in turn one. Not unlike whatever turn you play Seedling Song on, turn three. Yeah, like so that card and that card was like widely available in standard. Like <laughs> forget about like extended or any of these other big formats. You still play it in Legacy, right? It's not that common in like no, I, don't, I don't think no one plays it. I mean, they played in a. I think Cabal Ritual is the, the one that's played now. Not dark. Aren't they both played? No, I mean, I don't know. I don't play much Legacy, so I wouldn't know. But but I dark Ritual is so. only played in unfair decks in Legacy. In in standard and stuff back then, we just played it in every deck. Yeah, you played it in limited. You played it in 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 uh in like fair decks played it. Mm-hmm. Like because. Card was busto. <laughs> I think you can extrapolate the card was pretty busto. Yeah, just just a little bit. Now I'm like second guessing choosing this article. Like it was like seventy percent of the article is just like dark ritual blowouts. Yeah, it's fun though. Did you learn much from this article? It's no how to win a PTQ. No, I mean there are like some small lessons here and there, but it it's just like an interesting glimpse into what I guess life on the tour was back, you know, back in the early two oh, yeah, thousands yeah, or whatever. We, I think I just think we had more fun than. Well, I, I think that like now. I mean, I don't know. I like I have fun as a person now, right? But I don't have to go to the pro tour to have fun. You know, like I was in Vegas last month, and people are like, oh, "Are you gonna like, misbehave?" Like, you... I, I live in New York City; I can misbehave at that level at any time. If I, I mean, like so it. why do you think it's more serious now? Do you think that like, Magic it's just a wider game, so it's harder to qualify? No, no. Or, like... We were serious about winning, right? Like, look at the caliber of players I'm writing about, right? These are great; these are the greatest players. I mean, but like, I've, I've... like, but we we just had fun. But I, I mean, I don't know. I, I. When I travel the GPs, I you know I try to have a lot of fun with my my friends. Like when I when I roomed with like Dan and like Miles Rodriguez for like that one week for the Invitational over the summer, that was great. I had a ton of fun with them. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to exp- like, like we would crash a high school dance. Like that's the kind of stuff we would do. Like we would go to a da- I don't know like. I don't know. There's like this one night we were on the boat and then we went to this dance. There was this girl called Nicole Egger. You ever heard of her? She was on, she was like guys of my generation. She's my age. So guys of my generation. She was like one of like the hottest TV stars. Like she was on the show, TV show called Charles in Charge. She was on a TV show called Baywatch. I'm sure you've heard of one of those two shows. Mm-hmm. She was in the same club as me and some other people. Like it was like, like, I, I, I don't know. Um, it's, like, a very funny story, but it's not that funny if you don't know who the people are and who are in it. But, like, I don't know. We just did stuff like that. You know, I don't know. I feel like I feel like when I hear stories about not even you, but, like, young kids who are, like, going to – not young like they're my kid's age or something, but, like, you know, late teenagers or whatever who are going to tournaments now, it's just – it's kind of sleazy, but, like, not fun, you know? What do you mean? What? <laughs> like when we were at Outback. <laughs> what stories were we getting told when we were at Outback? Sure. Okay, like that's not fun. Like I don't I wouldn't want my kids to be doing that stuff. No. I, but like we like I don't know, it was fun, like yeah, we'd like we chase girls or whatever, but like it was like in a fun way, not like in a like I keep using the word fun, maybe I'm just like hammering this into the ground, right? Like 
like in a good clean fun way you know sure like not in a not in a somebody's gonna get arrested way <laughs> i guess my generation did plenty of stuff to get arrested for i guess sure i, guess, I, I mean it's probably not fair do you, do you think it's like magic as a whole the attitudes change or do you think it's just kind of like these young younger guys who is, is it more serious now to play I these think, tournaments like what, I what's think the deal a lot of these guys who are, I, this is very interesting to me because I'm, I'm, I'm here a lot of these guys who are in these stories became the great gamblers right so Dave Williams John Finkel Brian Hacker became the great gamblers right but they were magic I think maybe not hacker but largely they were magic players first and then they extrapolated the skills and playing magic to become some of the greatest gamblers who ever lived like john Trick sure. is the greatest blackjack player of all time right like so but let's go back to like no, 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 let me like, let me no, yeah, let, yeah, me, yeah, let me finish my thought they became great gamblers sure the generation now happens learn a lot of their stuff from poker skills or the celebratization of poker or poker being on tv and they're like oh this super mathematical hard-nosed way of looking at things is the only way you can approach it and then they take that attitude at the nth degree to magic right hmm. it's the opposite right like john would have still said that there's one right play but like we just approach everything with such with with so much more joy and like now people are just approaching it with like like it, it's it's hard for me to explain this like we were all killers on the inside right but we approached going to magic tournaments and playing and stuff with joy not like to be at the magic tournament and be stoic right hmm. like the stuff you're saying is like oh well you couldn't do that because it's not stoic you know what i mean like everything's yeah. stoicism like hmm. none of us were stoic like look listen to the stories like you would just destroy someone or you would like you know abuse the judge staff or whatever and then you'd all just go out for steaks right it was like a big deal like expensive dinners was always a big deal for us that was like one of the things that we would always go get like you know Every pro tour in New York, like, I would just do, like, three or, three or five expensive dinners that week, you know, meeting up with different guys who I didn't see all the time. You know, they'd come to town, we'd, just, we'd go to Katz's, we'd go to Platforma, we'd go wherever. You know, like, after the pro tour, you'd probably have, like, a really expensive dinner, and, like, whoever made top eight would pay, right? That would be, like, a... Mm -hmm. But then, like, the whole week, people were there to test and hang out, and we would, you know go to good dinners and play cards and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean... I just, I just don't feel like... My vision of what's going on isn't the same. Like, I think maybe I'm just completely skewed. I think, like, people just play, like, a way more... I mean, I've just come back to the word stoic, kind of less... Hmm. less joyridey approach. Is that... Is that your reading? Maybe. I, I think that... I think that the tournaments that I've done, maybe, I don't know if this is true or not, maybe I've done, like, better at, I've had the most fun at. Or I, I, was, I was trying to put this in words, like... Hmm. I think for me back then, like, for me right now, if I go, if I take the time to travel to a tournament, I really just want to win the tournament, right? Like, so I approach it with less joy, right? So... But back then, hmm. I cared more about the camaraderie than I cared about winning. And it, that was obvious by my results. I, I think it's interesting. I mean, maybe 
Like, I wonder if I've, if I'm trying, like, I'm trying to think now, like, me, you know, I haven't played a lot in the last couple of months. Yeah, but you're going to come back now, now that you're done. No, of course. Like, movie, I'm, I'm done with my film. I'm, gonna, I'm graduating soon. You know, hopefully, like, once things kind of settle for me, like, I, I want to go, I want to go Are you playing play. tomorrow night? Yes. No, I have a paper to write. Shut up. <laughs> you're keeping me out of the gym tonight. I'm not gonna get home in time. Um, but but I think I think like once okay so okay I want to try this so like once I get back into playing more Magic like I want to travel to more GPs I want to go to more Star City events. I think this is an, an interesting way. To... So I'll just tell you a quick thing. Yeah, yeah, go for it. I think if you're gonna choose to travel and like just travel, let's call it regionally, not not locally, right? We're, I mean, like PPTQs is locally, right? If you're gonna travel regionally, yeah, like in a couple of states over, it's over, it's over. Get in a car. I mean, occasional little plane. You should probably play in Star City events. Yeah, GP. In my opinion, GPs are not a good investment for a random. Like, not to be disrespectful of you or your skill level, like no. a player at your level doesn't get very much out of a GP, right? Like they're huge. Your likelihood of doing well is much much lower, and. You look, the difference between a GP and a Star City event and expectation matters to about four people in the entire tournament. Think about it for a second, right? Like, who's getting those invitations? Who's not already qualified, right? Like, the percentage of people who are getting rewarded at that level is very, very different than a Star City event. Yeah, I, I guess, like, for Star City events, though, like, I, I think it's, like, generally more easy to qualify like I, I, yeah, but I, Star City I, events are open invitation events, right? Unless you're talking about going to the invitation. No, like, I mean, because the the goal of like Star City events is, I think, ultimately the queue for the invitational, right? And to play in like. I think that the goal of Star City events is to play in a competitive format, right? Sure. Like on a, like a play in a big tournament that has a cash prize. Yeah. No. That's like fair. I mean, I played in tons of tournaments over the years. That, I like, mean, like tons of I mean tons of Star City players play in multiple opens that are always queued for the envy. Well, I mean, a lot do at least. I mean, queuing for the envy isn't that hard, right? No, I, no. I wanted to queue for the envy every time I could, right? Yeah. Like you just you just have to put in you just have to put in some Saturdays. Like that's that's very I different mean, than like, queuing for the I pro mean, tour. Like I, I played. I think the only Star City events I have played in the last like six months have been re, the regionals we've played and one open. I'm actually still. I still think about the tournament. Oh my god. Okay. Anyway, but like, I played one Invitational, one regionals. Well, yeah, the Invitational Regionals and, like, one Open, I'm, like, a few points away for qualifying. So I'm going to go to, like, I'm, I'm going to team up with, like, two guys for fun and, like, go to one of the Opens in, I think, in May. I think I'm going to play in the, the t- there's two team-constructed Opens this summer, right? I think I'm going to play in both of them. I've, I've, had, I've had some invites. You didn't invite me. Other people invited me. I feel like I ask you and Lan all the time to play with oh, me, and no, no, no one gets back to me. invites. I don't know. Maybe I'll Invite with who? Peace Holy? All right, to to BD, I guess. TB, I guess I guess TB. you'll just have to see on Sunday evening when I'm you know sleeving up some fire blasts. <laughs> you think they'll let me play the fire blasts, or you think like I, I have to? No, something about we are playing a real deck in Legacy, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> All right, can I play the Eidolons? No, you're playing standard. <laughs> it's BS, man. Do you think right. I could? Do you think I could make it so that like the the, like, the team would be like Earthshaker, Kenra, Eidolon? <laughs> Fire blast! <laughs> what if that was the squad every week? Roman Pusco. See, that's approaching Magic: The Gathering with joy, not you for your opponents. Them. Your opponents will feel no joy, even if they win. They're like, it's disgusting. Honestly, I want, oh, we should do that. Yeah, like Earthshaker, Kenra. I don't. We, we all go turn blast. one mountain. 
Might not go turn one mountain in the in the modern deck. You could theoretically. I mean, your draw probably isn't very good if you play turn one mountain in the modern deck, right? Like, but if your hand is mountain, mountain, Edelon, your deck has two Ransom. mountains in it. Okay, so if you're playing turn one mountain, what series of events happened for you to have turn one mountain? Do you not have a white source? Are you just willfully taking three points of damage later for no reason? I mean, like, what's the like, what's the calculus here? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the legacy deck, Turn One Mountain, is probably okay. So, so anyway, let's just kind of let's wrap this up. So, I think when I go back to play more of these events tomorrow, tomorrow, <laughs> literally tomorrow, I, I'd like to approach it. Maybe I'll, I want to try like this kind of angle you guys had. You know, just I, I mean, I want to win events, right? What I also don't, I want, I, I don't, I think that a lot of players maybe see Magic as sometimes a chore. Or like, yeah, or, that's what I mean. We never felt that I mean, way. I mean, I see, but I, I see this on Facebook and stuff. Like people, people post like, oh, I need to like win this, oh, uh, like, uh, like win this event. Or if they like, I think because this past weekend I, I had like three friends that queued. Yeah, for the for the or not, not like friends, friends, but like people, people you I know. know that are like that know me where we you know whatever. Um, like the guy who beat me in the finals of that PPDQ. A local guy, Gene, and then uh, a friend of the pod, you know, a listener of the podcast, Michael Mapson, and and they all queued. I remember I texted all G- crush GP, right? Yeah, this was the past awesome, weekend. Awesome, yeah, awesome for them, right? I, I was on my film set. I, I saw this. I was like, I'm super stoked for these guys. Yeah, I, te- I, I texted, I texted G, and he just goes, "Thanks, waiting for top four." I'm like, like, come on, dude! Like, you're in, you top eight in GP with burn. Like, at I- least he played for Destructive Revelry. Right, like if like the people I can't stand are the ones who play like, like three. Well, yeah, you're, they're they're investing in the stomping ground, but then just play like three destructive revelry. <laughs> it's like, what are you thinking? If you're this guy, right? Like you have to play four destructive revelry. At that point, I feel like you might as well be a Tarkus commanding, right? Like, <laughs> like at least then you get more skull cracks if you want them, right? Think yeah, about yeah. it for a second. Like, why are you not a Tarkus commanding? Is is Skullcrack a better main deck card if you've already built the mana base? Like, isn't it worse? Yeah. Like it. It. Anyway. Anyway. Separate thing. This is something I learned from Lan. In like the late '90s, early 2000s, I would just always try to get on the best team that I could get on, like, and play with like whatever great players would like take me, including playing with like pretty unethical players, right? Like players who had like. <laughs> bad reputations like for team events and stuff like that like and i just like oh look you you can just cobble together enough point total if you have this and this and stuff like that and i learned something from lynn and he said it to me like and then after that i just changed my mind about everything and he's just like why don't you just play with your friends like why are you just like why are you just like desperate to try to like play with who, who, whatever, best, whoever or... is like the best is like one of the best deck designers in the world, right? Just practice, you know? It also so happens that some of your good friends are some of the best players in the world, right? But I was just like, like, oh, that's such a better way of looking at it. Than, yeah. Like I just said, you just, just play with your friends and choose friends who are going to make you better, right? And like, I was just like, what was I thinking? You know, like, but I think like, like, I think there's, like, this weird thing in Magic where, like, especially local players are, like, they'll just grasp onto any level of Magic celebrity they can get to, even if it's scumbags, right? Like, like you. Just kidding, kidding, kidding. Yeah, it could be like me, right? So, I mean, you know that there's stores somewhere, right, where, like, 
some guy's playing an FNM at that store every week. He's playing it like the local Tuesday or Wednesday event like we do sometimes, right? And that's the guy who, like, nobody wants to play against in the Star City Tour because he's just, like, such a D-bag. And, like, but he has, like, you know, eight Star City Top 4s or something. So he's, like, the local hero. Like, that guy should be vilified. No one should be hanging out with that guy, hmm. right? Instead, they're like, oh, I know this guy. He, like, he beat me last week. At he probably cheated against you, you know? Like, don't, why give him the time of day, right? Like, I have so many good experiences from just, like, like, David Tao is our friend, right? Like, he's just, like, the nicest guy. And it's, no, like, rando guy who I met in FNM, and now, like, he's one of the guys that I have dinner with and, like, go out with and stuff. He's just, like, just play with your friends. Like, he's a very smart person, you know? Like, and, you know, like, that... Like, look, you have three guys who were local players in two of the three cases that qualified last week. You would put yourself on a similar tier to them in terms of playability, right? Yeah. I mean, just saying, just play with your friends, man. They're good enough. So just, you know, I think one of the mistakes I made when I was, like, much, much younger was I was the best player in my playgroup consistently. That's also bad. If you're the best player in your playgroup, you don't get any better. No, of course. And in fact, you just, you, you know how V said... There's 10 possible plays. Nine of them are wrong. Seven win. You end up, you end up buying a lot of the six that are, that are, that win, but, but, um, but aren't right. I don't know. Just some food for thought. Huh. You know what? You know what's interesting? I, I think when I was going to this article, I wasn't going to like, not learn a ton from it. Just kind of get some nice experiences. Yeah. That, that, this is, is a lot of, yeah, a lot of food for thought. I think. It's an, an appro- it's an approach that I want to take on magic now because I think I think that I've had a lot of not pr- I don't think I have a pressure on myself but I I want to you know I do want to win tournaments but I think also it's equally as important as to to have fun with your friends I mean like why else would you why why else play the game it's a game right yeah that's what I'm saying like. People who are approaching it who, like, this is just mono my job or something, it's like, why not just have a job? Like, it, it, you know, a job pays better than playing Magic. Like, almost any job pays better than playing Magic. I, I think... So like, we, that's the... So, yeah. like, if you're going to make Magic your thing, at least approach it with joy. That's what I'm saying. So, it's like, a, it's a privilege to play Magic. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly privileged to play Magic. Like, you don't just get to play Magic, right? Like, I think, personally, I think we talked about this a little bit before and, like, kind of some community stuff. Like, I think you earn your position in the community constantly by how you treat other people. Like, me? No, everyone. Oh. (laughs) Yes, you. You're one of everyone, right? And if you act in such a way that, like, you're ostracizing others, you should be ostracized, right? Like, and I don't even think this is a tough call, right? Like, why? It's a privilege. It's a privilege to be part of the community. It's a privilege to, like, interact with smart people who challenge you and teach you things and make you better at math. Like, why? And why not have fun, right? Like, so any of I cannot stand, like, there's so many, like, negative YouTubers or something like that. Like, why give them the time of day, right? Like, it's just, it just makes your life worse. Make your life better. Listen to Ancestral Recall. Subscribe to Ancestor Recall on iTunes. Tell your <laughs> friends to subscribe to Ancestor Recall on iTunes and give it a five-star rating. Why? Because maybe then KYT won't kick us off for not showing up for work 75% of the time. <laughs> we love you, Canada. 
We love you, Canada! All right. This is Ancestral Recall signing off.